Views and opinions expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of their employers. This podcast may not be suitable for children. Adults may find details triggering and or offensive. Listener's discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. This is Norma. And this is Princess Priscilla. And you're listening to (laughs) It's the the Mystery Mystery for Me. Me. back to it's the mystery for me i'm back from vacation but we didn't miss a week because of it yay we recorded ahead of time ahead of schedule so Mm -hmm. if you were wondering i went to curacao and it was amazing it's so relaxing like the vibe of the island itself very relaxing if you're trying to just like go on vacation and just like sleep wake up go to the beach repeat is the island for you and the water was incredibly beautiful, like light blue and clear. Honestly, best water I've ever seen, aside from Aruba. And it makes sense because Aruba is next door to Curacao. So I didn't know where it was at all in terms of Aruba and Curacao, even though I've been to Aruba mm-hmm. um, like two years ago, until I looked at a map recently. Then I realized like it's right above South America. Did y'all know that? I didn't know that. So yeah. I loved it there. I'm definitely going to go back. It was actually a like graduation gift to my baby sister, Michelle, who's 21. She just graduated from college. So I took her on vacation. And of course, I was like, Norma, you should come so we could do a sister's trip. But Norma did not renew her passport in time. And I forgot to mention, we celebrated two years of having the podcast recently. Oh my gosh, I forgot. I can't believe it. I should listen back to, like, episode one just for fun. And you should, yeah, too. Yeah, I should, since I've never heard it. We should do, like, a reacting episode to it, where it's like, <laughs> <laughs> would we do anything differently? Would we do anything? I don't know. Just mm-hmm. to see the changes. Why not? Thank you for sticking with us uh, for these two years. And if you just recently joined within that two years, thank you for also supporting us. We wouldn't have gotten this far without all of you so we just want to say that we really appreciate you guys for everything for listening for liking for sharing the podcast for leaving reviews for rating it we really appreciate it we should definitely make some sort of list as to like what we want to accomplish for the rest of the year there's a lot of things in the works don't Mm -hmm. worry i didn't forget about stuff i told y'all about like the podcast episode we did with the victim's family member. We didn't forget. Trust me, it's in process. It's a lot more that goes into editing that type of podcast than I anticipated on top of like real life work duties Mm -hmm. where it's like a puzzle piece, putting together the perfect puzzle (laughs) without knowing, like without seeing a picture of what it's supposed to look like, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. So it's a lot, but I don't want to give like a firm date Y'all will just, like, be surprised with it. Yeah. But don't worry. It, it is. It's in the works. And I finally wrote my letter to the person I'm writing to who's in prison. Um, it's for another case we're working on. And their story is just so intriguing. Once we tell you the story, you're going to be like, okay, we understand why you wrote to this person. Um, because I kind of want to tell that person's story too. So I did write a letter, I wrote it by hand. Um, So there's a bunch of like scratches or like rewriting words and stuff, but I wanted it to feel personal versus typing a letter, Mm -hmm. okay? So I didn't realize there were so many rules and regulations for sending things to people in prison. I guess, I mean, I really should have realized that because I did take a class in law school called prison law. So, (laughs) and it was taught by, a former federal prisoner, my professor. Yeah, his story is wild. Um, If you want to look it up, his name is Sean Hopwood. 
So he was basically robbing banks and he went to prison and then, yeah, he was my professor. But anyways, you need to write like the person's name and like their number, their inmate number. Um, it can't be more than five pages. I guess that isn't too complicated, but still it's nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's also in progress. Yeah, I was just saying like you want to make sure that you get it right because you don't want it to like be bounced basically. Right. And I also, because I had sent an email to this person in March, okay, through JPay. JPay is like, honestly gives scammer vibes because mm-hmm. I definitely emailed them saying like, hey, I don't know if they got the email or not. And they emailed me back like a month or two later. saying like we'll be with you shortly or like we're going to look at your request soon and it's like what i don't know if y'all have used jpay and maybe had a better experience but i didn't have a good experience and that's why i'm doing it the old-fashioned way but at the end of the letter i did put a phone number and it is our google voice number in case it's easier for them to pick up the phone and call us versus like writing a letter so lots to come stay tuned I don't have any updates as far as the um, Bradley sisters case goes. Uh, There have been no new articles published, so I really have no idea what's happening with that. I did look up Lauren Smith Fields case the other day. So she went on the date with that guy from Bumble, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then turned up dead, right? So the latest stuff that I saw in her case was that her lawyer was trying to get the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut to give him and her family certain public records as far as 911 calls like they want to hear the call they want to so there's certain things that like the police has to approve before they can get it and they said that the process has just been like horrible wow that people have not been adhering to like their requests and stuff and they're all reasonable requests and they just want some sort of answer or answers i guess when it comes to their daughter and how she died so i'm not sure why bridgeport connecticut is dragging their feet on this but i just feel like that's the least you can do the only reason i feel like they might not be releasing it is maybe something implicates somebody not even a police officer but maybe the guy that was there Mm -hmm. right her date and maybe it would look bad if the police released the records and it kind of pointed to him and they didn't really you know what i'm saying they like let him go right they were just like he doesn't seem like the type right to do this <laughs> so which is very strange that they would say such a thing um especially as being cops you're supposed to be like objective right. yeah so clearly they are not um so that's something that's been going on and of course they seized a few things from the scene that night so the parents also just want like a list of things you seize and again it's not getting done um and from last week someone commented and said it's not barometer i think we meant speedometer i asked you norma i asked you you told me barometer <laughs> was right speedometer that is true. i did say i think that's right my bad yeah you're bad indeed and with that being said it is my turn to cover a case And I'll just go ahead and turn to the sources for this week's episode. I watched a show on investigation discovery. I also listened to a podcast that's run by like a pretty reputable TV show that people probably watch. And of course, I read a bunch of different articles. And a lot of these articles had repetitive information. This was a case where I felt like I kept running into a wall in terms of like, I want to know more and feeling like, there were just still a lot of gaps. But I tried my best to put the story into this cohesive way that's going to make sense. For a list of all of today's sources, go ahead and check out our website. It's themysteryforme.com or click the link in today's show notes. This case takes us back to the early 2000s, 2007 to be exact, in Atlanta, Georgia. This is the Curia family case. A family? A family. And I should give a trigger warning. Um, This case does involve violence against children. So as always, listener's discretion is advised. Jane Curia and her three kids, two girls and one boy, moved from Kenya to Boston in 2001. The reason they moved is because Jane's husband slash kid's father died. 
By 2002, Jane and her three kids had moved to Powder Springs, Georgia. And according to the show I was watching, it is a suburb in Atlanta. Sources don't say what inspired the second move, but maybe it's the weather. Is it cold in Atlanta? I don't know. I feel like Atlanta gets cold. Yeah, I think it does. Maybe it just had better job opportunities or something. Maybe better school system. Mm -hmm. Wait, where was she moving from? Boston. It's obviously also cheaper. Yeah. Right, so... Definitely many reasons to move to Atlanta. According to several articles I read, it looks like Jane and her kids were applying for asylum. And even though I'm a corporate lawyer, I help with asylum petitions all the time. So figured I'd give you guys some background on what that entails. Someone who applies for asylum is someone who is seeking to stay in the United States, but to make it legal, right? So it's like you're applying for asylum usually because of some sort of tragic reason and i'll give you guys just like a broad overview of what that looks like first you have to have a fear of persecution persecution means a threat to life or freedom now persecution can be shown in different ways it could be serious physical harm it could be coercive medical or psychological treatment it could be uh you know disproportionate punishment for a crime or maybe being prosecuted for something you didn't do. It can also include severe discrimination, being treated differently because of the class you're in, in terms of money. And it could also look like severe extortion or robbery. But on top of you showing that you have a fear of persecution, right? Like one of these things have happened, or maybe more than one of these things have happened, These things had to have happened because you were in a protected group. So the protected groups are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or a particular social group that you're a part of. Now, social group can mean different things. Like it could be sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. It could be your gender, right? Like crimes against women, crimes against men specifically in those countries. So to summarize, you need two things, fear of persecution, right? And then also for that fear to be motivated by you being a part of one of the protected groups. So that is like a very broad summary. So her daughters in particular were worried about genital mutilation. And Mm. that is very prevalent in Kenya and other countries. And that is what their petition focused on so if we're thinking about what i just talked to you guys about right persecution and then protected category did they have a fear of persecution i mean did anything happen or could anything happen for them it's probably coercive medical treatment right like Mm -hmm. that is a procedure performed usually by medical professionals so boom we got the first part and it has to have been motivated by being part of a protected group. So they do this to who specifically? Women, right? It's a very valid reason for them to want to seek asylum and for, honestly, asylum to be granted. I did some research into the area of genital mutilation just to educate myself some more. And of course, I was afraid of coming across any before and after pictures. Thankfully, I didn't. You know, it's just one of those things where you hear it and you can feel the pain, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like awful. But in Kenya, this was actually outlawed in 2011. So them being in the U.S. in 2001 and 2002, this is a valid reason why they would be afraid. You can also get fined $2,000 if they find that you performed genital mutilation on someone. However, that being said, people still break the law as they do with a lot of other laws, right? Like, hey, if I'm not going to get caught, you know what I'm saying? Like, a lot of people think like that and just say, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you also have to think about it this way. Like, police can choose when they want to enforce a certain law. True. So just because it's a law doesn't mean it's, like, a guarantee. The World Health Organization site says that this procedure is, or I should say, like, torture, is usually done anywhere from, like, the time of birth to around 15 years old. And for contacts... At this point in time, 2001, or I guess 2002 is when they moved to Georgia. Her daughter, Isabella, 
was around 14 years old at that time. And her daughter, Annabelle, was around 11 at the time. Here are some of the reasons the website gives as to why people would engage in this type of practice. One is to go along with social norms. So everyone in your community is doing it or all the women in your like community have done it, all the girls. So that's kind of just what you do, it's second nature. Another reason could be preparing for marriage. So if you want your child to marry into a certain family, maybe one of their rules is like, okay, they needed to have undergone genital mutilation. The website also mentioned that about 4 million people in Kenya have undergone this procedure. That's, That's insane, lot. right. Jane also said that her life was in danger. And I saw this in a particular article from Nation Africa, but it does not elaborate on why she felt that way. On working on these types of asylum claims, I can tell you that you need to be very specific with details. So her petition likely had a bunch of details, but we can't figure out like what her claim was and stuff just based off of that simple sentence, which is honestly a very complicated sentence too. Her life was in danger. Right. So basically the details were excluded from the article. It was excluded from the show. Yeah, I did not hear about it on the show or the podcast. Wow. If you're wondering about like filing these petitions, I can tell you that normally families will file together if people are like, if the kids are like under age 21, but you also have the option, even if you're under age 21, to file your own petition. And I've done that in the past with clients that I've had where it's been like two separate petition, even though one person was under 21. The article from Nation Africa does not say if the son had any specific claims, but you can imagine that if they all applied under one application that whatever applied to the mom, so in this instance, Jane saying that her life was in danger, applied to her children as well. Their lives were in danger. So we're gonna fast forward to 2007. Though a specific date isn't given in the source materials, the asylum application or applications, they were denied. And Jane was actually preparing to appeal that decision. So we're going to fast forward even more to July 2007. And at this point, Jane is working at a hospital and nursing home as a nurse. And um, I mean, she's also a single mother. She's definitely like very much so of a hustler. She has a beautiful two-story house. And at this point, she's about 47 years old. So I do have a question. So as she's waiting for her asylum petition to be processed and whatnot, Mm -hmm. what status does she have in the United States? Undocumented. And she's able to become a nurse? You're right. And work? Well, see, this is the other part of it. Sometimes there could be like some sort of visa program that you that's can what do. I was wondering. Yeah, I am not like super proficient in immigration law, but I would think that if she's working at a hospital and a nursing home, that yeah. there has to be some sort of documentation yeah. that will allow mm-hmm. for that. Um, and again, like the article didn't really say if it was her application was that was denied or her kids' applications. Oh, okay. And it just, I don't know. Okay. Jane is described as an amazing mother, someone who is very positive, someone who attends church regularly. According to another article from GA followers, Isabella is 19. This is Jane's daughter. And she attends college in Tennessee, but was home for the summer. Annabelle... Jane's other daughter is 16 years old and was a rising junior and preparing to start the school year. Jeremy, her only boy, is seven years old at this point and really into basketball and playing outside. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of sources available for this case, so I don't have much other details about who they are as people or who they were as people. And one of my favorite parts of the episodes is telling people more about the personalities, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because it honestly helps to humanize everybody. 
yeah. a little bit more and connect you to that person. All right, so we're going to go ahead and fast forward to Sunday, July 29th, 2007. It was like any other regular day. And PK, who is their cousin, he's about 10 years old at this point. He just got to Atlanta from Kenya about two days earlier. And him and Jeremy are very close, so they played all day long outside and then eventually fell asleep early in the evening, though the time is not specified. And this was very typical, like cousin sleepover, you know, just having fun, being a kid. So PK's mom tries to reach them on Monday, but she doesn't hear back. And she found this odd because Jane always answered the phone. On Tuesday, August 1st, 2007, PK's mom, who was technically Jane's sister-in-law, she decides to reach out to her niece, Diana. She tells Diana what's going on. Hey, I can't get in touch with Jane or PK or anyone. And she tells Diana, like, can we go to the house? And so they make their way to the house. Diana is her niece, and she's also Jane's niece. Diana is only 22 at the time. Um, And she gets to the house and goes around the back and sees that the sliding door is slightly open. But she also notices it's, like, basically pitch black inside. And this is, like, the morning hours. So she's like, what's going on? Um, But she does see a TV on in the distance that had like some cartoons playing. She finally makes her way inside. And that is where she sees that there is a lot of blood on the floor alongside a body. And she obviously could not believe what she was seeing because it was Jane on the floor. She immediately called 911 and cops swarmed the place minutes later. When cops search the place, they determine that Jane, Isabella, and Annabelle have been murdered. They're all deceased. So where are the boys? Jeremy and his cousin PK are unconscious. The TV show said they were both in the bedroom, and then an article said that like PK was on the couch and only Jeremy was in his room. But nonetheless, they were unconscious. And detectives think that the boys were probably sleeping when they were attacked. They immediately rushed the boys to the hospital. Jeremy actually had to be airlifted because his injuries were pretty severe. The show doesn't talk too much about it, but they do mention blunt force trauma and that essentially everybody had blunt force trauma. There was a certain object used on them. We'll get into that in a bit. And uh, PK was transferred by ambulance and they were both put into comas and While they were in comas, police were actually so alarmed by the murders that they had security at the hospital for both the boys. PK regained consciousness one week later, and at first he had no memory of what happened. And what's interesting is there's a huge discrepancy on the show versus the podcast. The podcast says that PK said that, listen, I saw somebody, it was a man, and he was wearing a floral shirt. But the TV show did not mention it. Hmm. So it's theorized that the boys are still alive because the pillow under their head or whatever they were laying on, in the case of PK, it helped to absorb the force, the blunt trauma force. And so maybe this person thought that they were dead, but they were not dead. The police, of course, want to also talk to Jeremy, but it takes him a little bit longer to wake up from the coma. Um, But the show and the podcast don't elaborate on how long he was in the coma for. In an article from Nation Africa, it states that Jeremy was in the hospital for two months. Jeremy appears on the show and says his next memory after going to bed was just waking up at the hospital. He had no memory in between that. So he was literally attacked in his sleep. Yes. Wow. Maybe he didn't even feel the pain. Yeah. So let's go back to the crime scene. Detectives are stumped. They're looking around and they see that there is no forced entry. But they notice that blood patterns seem to indicate blunt force. And I'm guessing that it's just like a certain way the blood looked, right? Mm -hmm. Um you know, people spend years studying blood patterns and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. 
this is what the detectives think happened. They found Jane's body in the kitchen and they could tell that she had put up a fight. She had defensive wounds on her body, on her hands, things like that. And they think that based off of, I guess, how they found her, that she likely saw it coming and Mm. so, and fought, right? Here's the interesting part. Isabella is found at the bottom of the staircase. And they theorize that Isabella likely did not see it coming. And she was probably going up the steps when she was attacked. So basically, it's like the kitchen, hallway, and then the stairs going upstairs. Mm -hmm. Annabelle was found outside her bedroom door, right at the top of the staircase. And they also believe that she did not see it coming. And she walked into being hit. That was their exact words that they use on the podcast. They all had the same type of injury, blunt force trauma to the head. They are unsure as to what the weapon is at this point. And they can just tell, of course, like certain weapons leave certain clues, right? So they think that it is something that is stainless steel and they think it's pronged. Like, you know how a fork is? Mm -hmm. That's what a prong is. So those little things at the top of the forks. Anyways, um, (laughs) they could tell that it is pronged because of Jane's injuries. The cuts were also 10 to 12 inches in length that were on their body so that's also why they were like oh it's probably like this only thing i can imagine is like one of those things you barbecue with oh yeah could be that Mm -hmm. i'm just wondering did they hear anything how is it that they're all just attacked in the same way is there more than one perpetrator like it just doesn't make sense to me agreed agreed that leads me to my next point. There was no continuation of the blood, which means there was no footsteps that were covered in blood. There was no indication that all the scenes were connected. Usually blood is dripping off of somebody as yeah. they're walking through the house or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. No, they found that the blood was contained to that specific area. And there's also no blood leaving the house. They searched everywhere. They searched, you know, they looked at the grass. They looked at the sidewalk. They looked at the driveway. Nothing. And they lived on this private little cul-de-sac. It's a dead-end street. Mm -hmm. So it was a very quiet neighborhood. So this was very shocking to the community. This wasn't really the norm. They also said that within the blood that they found, right, these pools of blood, there was no foreign blood found in that. Like, for example, if they looked at the blood next to Jane, it was just Jane's blood. The detective basically said, even if there was a drop of foreign blood, it's like it's mixed in with her blood so much that you can't pull it out. Mm. Listen, the family especially is completely shocked by this because they're just like, how is it that something like this could happen to someone like Jane? She's just a quiet person doesn't bother anyone her kids are also super quiet you know and so basically the detectives were saying there wasn't anything that any one of them were involved in that could have led to something like this jane wasn't seeing anyone she didn't have a boyfriend an ex well it's not immediately clear and because there's no tips coming in or anything like that they turn to technology yes back in the ancient days of 2007 And they try to come up with a timeline or some sort of like person of interest based off of phone records and Mm -hmm. email records. They determined that Isabella sent an email on July 31st after midnight. So this would have been Monday in the wee hours of the morning. They also see that Jane missed a call also on Monday, July 31st, around 3.30 in the morning. So based off of that, the detectives think that this likely happened between midnight and 3.30 a.m. Mm. And I'm sure they also looked at the autopsy and they were able to kind of like uh, zone in on that time frame based off right. of the autopsy. There was an article that said that by the time Diana and PK's mom found them, that they probably were dead for like 30 hours at least. Oh, wow. Yes. 
the phone records also do something else. It brings them to their first person of interest, Patrick. Patrick is just another churchgoer. He is married, but he's friends with Jane. Annabelle, who is 16 years old, actually babysits his younger sons from time to time. When the police look at the phone records, the detective in particular says that he decided to pull the records from all of July and then going into like a few days after the murder. He just wanted Mm -hmm. to get a full picture. And what he found was very astonishing. He said that there were 10 to 15 calls a day between Jane and Patrick in the last month and even going into like two months before that. And in total, during that time, there were 300 calls made between both of them in like a month or two. Why are you calling someone 300 times That's what that you're I'm not saying. married to? I mean, it's a shared number. It could include the time she called him too. But yeah, I'm not sure about their friendship and the yeah. show and podcast don't really elaborate on it. Like sometimes he helps her to fix things around the house apparently, but that's really it. They just go to church together. Maybe they were praying together. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe they have Bible study together. Either way, on the podcast, Diana, her niece, saw them at a liquor store at some point and felt like they were giving off vibes that they were more than friends. And it happened to be like, they were picking up liquor because they were going to like some sort of party together in the same car. Um, so when detectives come to Diana and her family and say like, we're going to look at Patrick, that's immediately what comes to her mind. She's like, oh, right. Like, yes, I did see them at the liquor store. They did seem friendly. Like, yeah, I think you should check him out. Mm. Um, and we'll get to like what the police say in a bit. But it also comes up that Patrick would take Annabelle, who's 16, to dinner as payment for her babysitting. But they would go by themselves. And it's not known how old Patrick is, but you can assume he's probably like in his 40s or 50s. That is very bizarre. Isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds inappropriate. Right. So I don't know why it is that she was like allowed to go on these. I mean... A lot of the times, too, you know, people are very trusting. The police were very perplexed when they noticed that there were no calls from Patrick on July 31st, August 1st, etc. They literally stopped on July 30th. And if the police's theory is right that Jane and her two daughters were murdered in the wee hours of July 31st, you know... Only a killer would not call anymore, right? Because they know the person's not there to answer, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've seen that in other cases. Yeah, we have. But there's even more about Patrick. When they are looking at Jane's possessions and stuff, they see a note on a table. And it says basically that she lent Patrick $5,000 about a year before that. And maybe it was like a to-do list of maybe asking him for the money back or something, but that's what they saw. So eventually they do bring him in for questioning and they ask him, listen, why did you stop calling her? You know, your last call was July 30th. Mm -hmm. And he kept saying, I don't know, which frustrated the detectives. They just were like, you don't know? Like, clearly you guys talk every day. There has to be a reason you stop calling. Right. But the detective on the podcast says, like, you know, it's hard to do those types of interviews when you don't have any forensic evidence that could really back you up and put the person basically in a hot seat, right? Mm-hmm. Patrick also says he has an alibi, okay? And he says that he was home alone, <laughs> which... It's never a good alibi. Basically, his wife works at night somewhere else. And apparently it's quite a distance away and it's not elaborated on like how far it is. Okay. And so she works like nights and then he works early in the morning and gets off like in the early afternoon. They -hmm. also don't say what he does. As a matter of fact, the podcast does not use his name at all. The show does though. So yeah, the detectives are just like, all right, you have an alibi that... No adult can 
okay, basically. So what do you want us to do with that? And then he was like, you know what? You guys should also look into the Mangiki tribe as a possible cause because they could have like just sent people to kill them here. And they were like, well, why would they do that? And then he said, well, Jane told me her husband was murdered by this tribe in Kenya and that's why they came. The detectives looked into it and it turned out that her husband died from pneumonia. So they're just like, huh? So could it be that like they were coming here to kill them because they didn't get genital mutilation done? It just seems very far-fetched to detectives that someone would come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe for other crimes, but they're just like, I don't know. They just felt like, nah, this don't seem too plausible. Another person of interest pops up, and it's this woman named Elizabeth. She's another churchgoer. She looks like she's probably in her 60s or 70s, but you never know. Some people just dress older than they are, and they Mm -hmm. end up looking older. But yeah, she just seemed like this harmless old lady. That's the vibe she was giving off. I don't know how this happens, but she becomes a spokesperson for the family, and basically like is doing interviews and like being the point person to communicate with people and police and stuff and the family just finds this so odd and one day they go to the hospital to visit jeremy because remember he was in there for two months so the sister-in-law i guess pk's mom goes and visits jeremy and it turns out that elizabeth has removed her name as guardian and put her own name down which I'm not even sure how this happened what? without consent. Yeah. So apparently she managed to do this by befriending Jane's mom, who mm. apparently lived in the US. So maybe the mom said, like, it's okay, like I give permission, mm-hmm. like as her, their grandmother, as as Jeremy's grandmother. I don't know. But when Jeremy gets out the hospital two months later, he goes to live with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth sells Jane's house, cars, all that stuff. What? It's just bizarre. I'm just curious, like, legally, how is this happening? Like, okay, Jane's mom might be like, I give her permission. But I wonder if there was, like, a will in place or something where where Jane said her mom could be power of attorney and then her mom passed power of attorney over to Elizabeth. I don't know. Right. But it just, it's weird that Elizabeth is selling Jane's house and car. I mean, you can't just walk up into anybody's house and just sell it. Mm-hmm. Like, it just, it's bizarre. Diana says, you know, she was 22 at the time, so she didn't know how to approach the situation. I'm sorry. I'm just so stuck on this concept. Like she's selling it and putting it in a trust. Right. So for the child, she is apparently putting it in a trust. But Jeremy says that he has not gotten access to that money. That is so bizarre. And the TV show, it says it was filmed in like 2022 or aired in 2022. How old is Jeremy now? Like, well, he he was seven in 2007. So what year are we in? 2023? Mm-hmm. So he's 23 years old. I'm sure he would have access to Right, by now. now. So yeah. it's just very strange. And I wish they, like, talked to the grandmother about this because, like, how did you let this lady do all of this stuff? Yeah. It's very, very strange. The cops keep... And, sorry, is oh. Elizabeth Kenyon too? Like... They don't say. Because I'm just, like, wondering, like, culturally, is that why the mom felt even more comfortable? It could be that. No, I don't know. I can see that. Because mom gets with Dominicans, other Dominicans, and she go haywire. So (laughs) it could be that. (laughs) Um, It turns out that she does know Patrick. But it's just through church, and the detectives are not able to decipher if the connection goes any deeper. It just seems like it doesn't. They just happen to attend the same church. Mm. So the detectives at this point are really scratching their heads and just like looking to just talk to anybody who might have some sort of insight into what happened. As far as neighbors go, no one reported hearing anything. And you can imagine if they were killed in the middle of the night, you know, people are sleeping, Mm -hmm. you know, so people probably didn't hear it. The detectives look at a piece of evidence, though, that they come across. They feel like is very promising. It's a bloody towel. 
And it's found Mm. two miles away from the crime scene the day after the murders. So the detective says that he thinks it is related to the murders because, like, it just seems, like, very out of place for this type of community. Mm. They did test the towel, and it does not match the blood of anybody from the house. They also tested against Patrick's blood, apparently, and it doesn't match him either. Hmm. But there has to be a reason why they think this towel is connected to this crime scene. Because, again, two miles away, maybe it's a towel that was a specific design that Jane had in her house or something. Like, Because, honestly, if you see a bloody towel in the middle, like, somewhere... yeah. It's not like it's next door to the house. Like, how do you really jump from that point to this has to do with the crime scene or whatever? Mm -hmm. It just seems like a very huge frog leap. I don't know. I'll come back to the towels in a bit. Jane had told a family member that she had a large sum of money coming in to the tune of $30,000. She told them it was a business she had with friends. And apparently the business was like flipping houses or something so real estate related totally Mm. legal but her family did not even know she liked real estate so they were so confused and even after the murder there was no thirty thousand dollars in sight so they wondered Mm. like is this the reason she was killed did the person not want to pay her right because again it's somebody she knows she let this person into the house there was no forcible entry Something else the police are thinking is something you mentioned earlier. Could there be more than one person involved? And I think yes, because that would explain the separation in the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Honestly, because if you think about it, Isabella is walking up the stairs when she's attacked, right? But like if someone's attacking her mom in the kitchen, which is to her right, like wouldn't she have already seen her mom being attacked? Right. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't make sense. Mm And also, like, her sister being killed outside her bedroom door. To me, it feels like there has to be at least two people yeah. involved. Um, but again, the detectives are just having such a hard time narrowing it down. Like, is Elizabeth capable of this? We know she's capable of selling all of Jane's stuff and putting her name down as uh, the guardian. But is she capable of, like, murder? What would she have to gain? And that's what they were basically looking at. What would a person have to gain if they murdered Jane Mm -hmm. and her family? I found like a forum where they were discussing this case. And some people pointed out the fact that the boys survived and all the women were dead. So does this point to that tribe or does this point to that gang coming back and killing them because they left because they didn't want their genitals mutilated Mm -hmm. so people really like honed in on that like wait all the women are dead but the boys survived but again like jeremy was barely clinging on to life right i did see a comment where someone was kind of saying like pk knows more than he's letting on but the detectives say that pk's story has remained consistent all through the years another theory in this case is what if this had to do with an inappropriate relationship between Annabelle and Patrick. What if Annabelle came to her mom and said, Patrick made a move on me. Mm -hmm. And her mom called him over to the house and he is married and he doesn't want his wife to find out. So he kills everybody. I mean, there's definitely motive there, I think. But it's just the way that the crime scene itself played out. It just doesn't make sense that he went there by himself and was able to do all this on his own. Right. Because I'm thinking if you're hearing someone scream and stuff and you go downstairs, you're probably going to run out the door or call 911 or I mean, if I don't know, some people might even run up to the person and like try to hit them or something. But I feel like flight would be a very common Mm-hmm. feeling in this scenario and so like the fact that her daughter was killed at the bottom of the stairs and then her other daughter was killed in front of her bedroom it's almost like there could have even been more than two people or like her daughter probably maybe heard her screaming came down the stairs yeah probably as she was turning back around to run up the stairs yeah like she was attacked that's possible from someone at the top of the stairs came down or the from person? behind yeah she's oh, turning maybe. around and then was attacked from behind maybe her screaming caused the other sister to get out to come out of the room but then it right. just doesn't make sense to me like 
you said that she was attacked almost immediately when she came out of the room. Yes. So that doesn't make sense. That tells me there was another person. Yeah. Like, either way. It's just very tricky. Mm -hmm. But remember, Patrick also still owes Jane money, right? And it didn't say in the sources that he paid back the five grand. Mm -hmm. So could it be that he was killing her because he didn't want to pay her back? It's possible. I just think that there's someone else involved. Hmm. Now back to the bloody towel that was found two miles away. I'm guessing that there had to be some pattern on the towel, like some sort of designer pattern, because I I just don't understand the connection. Um, But of course, the detectives are probably not putting a lot out there because the case is still unsolved. What? Yes. The case is unsolved, y'all. Yeah, they have no answers. They have no idea who did it. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Neither was I. So that towel has to hold something if they are like, you know, they focus on the towel on the show and on the podcast. And the detective said something about putting the DNA from the towel into a genealogy database, kind of like 23andMe. Yeah. How they did with the Golden State Killer. That's how he was caught. They just like traced his family tree. So there must be a reason for this towel that they think it's linked. Mm-hmm. But so far, there have been no matches in the system. It's all just a huge question mark. So eventually, PK and Jeremy both moved back to um, Kenya. And PK attended college and stuff. Jeremy completed high school. I'm not sure if he attended college, but presumably, yes. the did articles he go didn't... back to Ken- I'm sorry. Did he go back to Kenya by choice or was yes. it okay? Apparently it was his choice. Okay. Mm-hmm. The articles I was going to say don't really elaborate on like, you know, his education. It was just like these are a lot of the articles I found were written in 2007. Mm, I see. And barely had updates, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 2018, according to the Nation Africa article, Jeremy had to have surgery for a brain tumor. The family believes that him being attacked in the way he was, you know, blunt force trauma to the head, is the reason that he developed a brain tumor. Mm. Now, I had to Google because I wanted to know, is there a correlation between getting hit in the head and developing a tumor? And the answer wasn't super clear. It wasn't a strong yes. It was, I, I would say it's closer to a strong no. It's very unlikely it could happen in small percentage, but it's unlikely. Mm. So his old church from Atlanta actually helped to raise money to help cover hospital costs wow. for him to undergo that surgery. Aside from that, there have been no new leads on this case. And wow. Kenyans are demanding answers, whether they're here in the U.S. or in Kenya. And of course, just people in the community everyone people are just like how is it possible for a family all three of the women to be murdered and no one know anything right it's just like was this person like invisible or something like Mm -hmm. how is it that no one saw anything or heard anything to get away with murdering an entire family right is just unheard of right and not you know they have not found anything at the scene itself to connect anybody all they have found is like the victim's dna's wow but that's it like they have not been able to tie anybody to it i'm sorry this doesn't have an ending that makes you feel like justice was done, that it was handled. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a case like this in a while. Mm -hmm. These are just tough to do because for me, unsolved cases, I always just, I'm always left wondering like, what happened? It doesn't feel like a closed book to me. Mm -hmm. And her family also, to this day, they're all like wondering, they want answers. They did bury them in Kenya. You know, since that's where they were originally from and raised and stuff. Um, But the family is hopeful that one day they will get answers. And maybe this towel, this mysterious towel, will help them to get 
said justice but it's just it's wild to me that like no dna not a little bit was left anywhere and the detective said hey someone who is hitting someone with this type of object is bound to cut themselves Mm -hmm. and in doing so you're going to leave a track of blood but like clearly they were not able to find that like it's almost like this person was like in the friggin um invisibility cloak like harry potter or like a professional killer or professional oh my goodness because to be able to murder an entire family and there be zero of your own dna there is just to me someone that knows what they're doing gotcha not an amateur Mm. so it's not their first go around and the show, the podcast articles, they did not talk about whether or not Patrick had a past, if he had any history of doing anything like this, but mm. I would probably imagine no. I feel like they probably would have brought that up if that was the case. I'm sorry that this episode is about to leave you all feeling unsettled. Let us know in the comments what you think happened in this case. I just really, really hope that Atlanta is able to solve this. Mm-hmm. But remember the case we're doing Atlanta has been dragging their feet on that. Atlanta has actually been sued because of their, like, slow pace with certain things, like, with certain investigations. They have been sued. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And the detective on this case actually retired. But he still keeps in touch with Diana. He talks to her. And he really wants this case to be solved. And he also has said that this was probably one of the worst um, scenes he's ever walked into and seen, like no matter how long you work as a homicide detective, you never get used to death, is what he said. Mm -hmm. So that's the case of the Curia family. So let us know in the comments what you think happened. I really hope this case is solved, and I'm sending well wishes to her family and friends because this is quite the tragedy, and Jeremy is an orphan, right? His dad died, his mom died. He has no siblings. Wow. It's just like, he, all he has is his cousins. And his cousin Diana, um, she just said, you know what? We are still just as close. We're just missing three people. Mm. And that gave me chills. So that concludes this week's episode of It's the Mystery for Me. Next week is Juneteenth, so we will be off next week. And we'll see you guys back the following Tuesday for another new episode. Stay safe out there. Bye.